2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. For our boast... Oh, sorry. Bit of shuffling. We want us all to be... We want to read together. I'm not giving you slack. This is a communal event. Alright. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so towards you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us. But on the day, our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and to have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Surely as God is faithful, a word to you has not been yes and no, for the Son of our God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put his seal on us, given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy that you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excess sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. I came to Taurus to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, 
My spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took my leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Thanks, Troy. Let me encourage you to keep that open if you've got it open. Uh, We're going to work through that passage together. Let's ask God for his wisdom and his help as we do. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that it's useful to point us to the Lord Jesus and grow us to be more like him. Please help us to understand it. Please help us to put these things into practice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I can explain. Uh, We don't want to, but we've probably all had to say those words at some point in our lives, haven't we? Uh, I remember a funny example just before Jess and I got married. Uh, Jess and I actually got married on Valentine's Day. A bit cheesy, I know. Uh, and, And it wasn't because we wanted to get married on Valentine's Day, but that was the day that was free in the calendar. And so that's the day we chose. And uh, I went to Kmart to get Jess a Valentine's Day card. And while I was there, I had a great idea. So I thought it would be sweet to get her two Valentine's Day cards. One that said, for my girlfriend, that I could give her in the morning before the wedding. And one that said, for my wife, that for, to give her in the afternoon after the wedding. Great idea, right? Romantic. You guys can take notes, that's okay. <laughs> now the lady at the checkout in Kmart, <laughs> she wasn't so sure. <laughs> she looked at me a little concerned. She said, so, you've got a girlfriend and a wife, hey? <laughs> I can explain (laughs) a funny example, a misunderstanding that's easily cleared up, at least if the lady at Kmart believed me. But it's not always so easy, is it? Sometimes the misunderstanding runs deep. Sometimes there's real hurt. Sometimes I can explain takes time. And that's what we see here in this next part of 2 Corinthians. The Corinthians, they are hurt. They're really hurt. Paul changed his plans. He didn't come when he said he would. Instead, he sent them a letter, a hard letter. And now he's still not there. He broke his word. Now, remember, we saw last week the book of 2 Corinthians. It's actually the fourth letter from Paul to the church in Corinth. Paul's relationship with the Corinthians, it was strained and difficult. Things were tough. Paul wasn't impressive or seemingly successful like they wanted. There were false teachers calling them to turn away from Paul to a different gospel. And now Paul has let them down. He didn't follow through. And so Paul writes in the letter of 2 Corinthians to remind them of the gospel, to plead them to be faithful to the gospel and to be faithful to his partnership with them. See, rather than being ashamed of weakness and suffering, Paul wants them to see how in the gospel they can be finding joy in weakness and finding strength in God. So this week, it's time for Paul's I can explain moment. His actions haven't been unfaithful, deceitful or slack. 
Actually, because of God's work in him, Paul has done everything with gospel integrity that reflects God's character. We're going to see this in four areas in this passage. Paul tells the Corinthians he's acted with a clear conscience, he's acted with godly faithfulness, with heartfelt love, and with true forgiveness. But this isn't just about Paul. He's not the only one who should live with gospel integrity because God is working in us too. What we see in this passage is that by God's gracious work in our lives, all of God's people are to live with gospel integrity that reflects God's character in every area of our lives. But thankfully, this passage is not going to leave us just trying harder. It actually points us to our faithful God, the God who works in us through Jesus to grow us in this all of life gospel integrity. So let's dive in. It starts with a clear conscience. You see, Paul, he didn't follow through on his plans to visit the Corinthians. Was he being tricky, deceptive? Is he just plain unreliable? Paul says, no, actually his conscience is clear. Look in verse 12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so towards you. Paul hasn't been duplicitous. He hasn't said yes when he means no. He's been straightforward, fair dinkum. What you see is what you get. Simplicity and godly sincerity. And he's sure about this because his conscience is clear. And what what is the conscience really? Well, I want to say it's that slightly unreliable instrument that God has built into us as a warning that we're acting in a way that's inconsistent with what we believe to be right. We feel it as that little niggling guilty feeling when we've done something wrong. Sometimes it's a whisper and sometimes it's a shout. It's something good that God has given us so that we can live in a way that honours him in the world that he's made. And it's something that we need to pay close attention to. Now, the thing about conscience is that it is affected by sin and by the fall. It can be miscalibrated. It can be too sensitive, going off when you're doing something that isn't wrong according to God's word, but you feel it's wrong. Like a smoke detector going off while you're cooking in the kitchen. It can also be dulled. You can harden your conscience by keeping on doing the wrong thing, even when the alarm of your conscience is going off like crazy. And at some point, it stops working like it should. Maybe like taking the batteries out of the smoke detector and never putting them back. Paul is saying that there's actually a way for God's people to live in the world with a clear conscience. Paul's not talking about perfection. He knows we still sin. But he's talking about living with godly integrity so that we can act with a clear conscience at times and then confess with, a, with gospel confidence when we need to. In fact, Paul's so confident of this, he boasts about it. He says his boast is the testimony of a clear conscience. Now, we're going to see a lot of boasting in 2 Corinthians. 
But, but the key to understanding all this boasting is that Paul doesn't boast in how good he is. Actually, that's the opposite to what he's trying to do. He boasts in what God has done. Here's what he says in chapter 10, verse 17. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And we're going to see in all the other times he boasts, that's pretty clearly what he's doing. He's taking pride and joy in what God is doing in him. And this boasting here in chapter 1, it's no exception. Paul can only boast in a clean conscience because God has done this work in him. Look at verse 12 again. See, Paul says he behaved with godly sincerity. The word godly there means of God. He's not saying he's sincere like God. He's saying that this sincerity is God's work in his life. It's from God. And he didn't act by worldly wisdom, but by the grace of God. Everything Paul has done in his interactions with the Corinthians has been by God's grace and it's been to show God's grace to them. This isn't just how Paul's acted with his travel plans. It's also about the letter that he wrote. Verse 13. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Paul's not trying to write them a letter that's deliberately confusing, Even his hard letter that he sent them before, it's not meant to confuse them. It's meant for them to understand God's work in their lives, for them to understand the gospel that they've understood before and they will understand fully in the future. So that on the day that Jesus returns and said all things right, they will boast in Paul and God's work in Paul's life, just as Paul boasts of God's work in their lives. If God is working in our lives, then it's possible for us to live with a clear conscience too. Does that sound good to you? I know it sounds good to me. When my conscience is pricked, when that alarm light is going off on the dash, when I've done the wrong thing, I hate that. I can't stand it. A clear conscience is a wonderful thing. So how do we live like this? Well, first I want to say, pay attention to your conscience. If the warning light of your conscience is flashing, don't keep going. It's God's gracious warning to you. Like a warning light on the dash of your car. Stop. Think carefully. Pray that God would give you wisdom. Turn away from sin. Second, keep calibrating your conscience against God's word. Our consciences, they can be too sensitive or they can be too dull. We need to keep hearing God's word and taking it on board. To keep recalibrating what we believe is right and wrong against God's good and gracious standard. At times that will mean that we realise some things that we thought were right were actually wrong. Let's pay attention to that. And at other times, this will show us that what we thought were God's standards were actually our own traditions. And then two, we should be quick to recalibrate ourselves against God's word. (coughs) And third, when you do what is wrong, run to Jesus. See, Paul had no illusions. He knew that we would still sin. But when we've done wrong, we can run to Jesus. (coughs) 
He suffered and died to pay the penalty for our sins. If we trust in him, then our sins are paid for. Our debt is wiped away. Our consciences can be clean. Hebrews 10 says we can draw near with our hearts washed clean of an evil conscience. John says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Only Jesus can give us a clean conscience. Run to him. Don't put it off till later. Run to him straight away because he delights to forgive. As God's people, with God working in us, we can live with this kind of gospel integrity. But there's more. See, not only does Paul have a clean conscience, he insists that he's acted with godly faithfulness. Paul outlines the circumstances. His original plan was to visit them first so that they would get two visits. Verse 15. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes and no, no at the same time? Was Paul tricking them? Did he really mean what he said or did he have his fingers crossed behind his back? Was he saying yes, yes when he really meant no, no? Verse 18. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. See, Paul has lived with godly faithfulness. Just as sure as God is faithful, he has acted faithfully as one of God's people and one of God's leaders. And that doesn't mean he's not flexible. In our next section, we're going to see why Paul changed his plans. But it does mean he's always working for their good. To be faithful as God is faithful. Paul's changed plans might make them question whether they can really trust the good news of Jesus that Paul proclaimed to them. Maybe, after all, they should go with these new false teachers. But Paul says, no, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is always faithful. He's not yes and no. He's always faithful to keep his promises, every single one. Just look in verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. And that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. In Jesus, God is faithful to all of his promises. Every single one. The promises of a seed of Eve who would crush the serpent's head, fulfilled in Jesus' death and resurrection to conquer Satan's sin and death. The promise of a blessing to Abraham's descendants, fulfilled as, as we share in every spiritual blessing in Jesus. The promise of a descendant of David who would rule his people forever, fulfilled in Jesus the King who has all authority in heaven and on earth. The promise to be with his people, fulfilled in Emmanuel, God with us. The promise to write the law on our hearts fulfilled in Jesus who sends us his Holy Spirit as a victorious king. I could go on and on and on. 
As one of the kids said, there are a lot of God's promises. All of God's promises find their fulfilment, their ultimate yes, in Jesus. Uh, Just an aside, I want to say, when you're reading the Old Testament, keep this in mind. All God's promises find their yes in Jesus. Jesus is the pinnacle, the focus, the fulfilment of the whole Bible. And Paul, Timothy and Silas, they're living to proclaim Jesus Christ, to declare by their lives and their message to all who will hear the good news of Jesus. See, them proclaiming the gospel and living with God, gospel integrity is like saying a huge amen to God's faithfulness before all the world, to God's glory. But there's more. You see, God's faithfulness isn't just a one-time deal. God continues to be faithful to his people. He works in us by his spirit. Look in verse 22. Verse 21. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Look at what God does for his people here. He works in our hearts to grant us faith in Jesus so that we're joined with him, firmly established in the faith. He anoints us with the Holy Spirit to change us and empower us to live for him and serve him. He put his seal on us, giving us his Holy Spirit as a guarantee that we belong to him and that he will finish his work in our lives. God doesn't just start the job and leave the rest up to us. He continues to be faithful. He continues to work in us. Paul points to God's faithfulness because as God works in Paul, he grows to be faithful in a way that reflects God's faithfulness to us. So how do we grow in this kind of faithfulness? Well, surely it has to start with seeing and remembering God's great faithfulness to us in Jesus. Remembering that all God's promises find their yes in Jesus. And not only that, but God graciously continues to be faithful to us. Working in us by the Spirit to help us grow to be more like Jesus. It has to include praying that God would work in us by his Spirit to help us grow in faithfulness. And then let's do it. Let's be faithful to what we say for each other's good. Don't say yes if you mean no. It might seem nice to agree to something that you don't actually plan to do, but it's not being faithful. We do actually need to be flexible. We'll see that in a moment. But but we always mean what we say, and we need to be faithful in working for one another's good. That's the kind of gospel integrity that reflects God's faithfulness to us. So then, why would Paul change his plans? Well, it actually all comes down to Paul's heartfelt love. See, it's out of Paul's love for the Corinthians that he decided to change his plans. Remember, he knew that their relationship was strained. And what's more, he knew that there were things going on in Corinth that if he came in person, he would have to confront in person, adding further strain to their relationship. And so he decided to spare them out of his heartfelt love for them. See it in verse 23. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you. 
that I refrain from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over you by your faith, over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? Paul's already visited them once and had to confront serious issues in person. That was his painful visit that he talks about there. But he didn't want to cause them pain. He wanted to make them glad. He wanted to work together with them for their joy in their faith in Jesus. That was his goal. In fact, Paul's love for the Corinthians is so great that it's only their rejoicing in Jesus that can relieve his pain over having to rebuke them. Only their rejoicing can make him glad. Paul deeply loved the Corinthians. He cared for them. He thought carefully about how to help them grow to be more like Jesus, how to bring them joy and not grief. But notice that that doesn't mean that Paul was soft on sin. It doesn't mean he could just sweep the problems under the rug and pretend they're not there. See, real heartfelt love sometimes means conflict. It means confronting sin and problems instead of pretending they're not there. It means speaking the truth in love to one another, even when it's hard. Because that's what we'll do if we love one another. If my kids are running towards a busy road, I don't pretend it's not happening because I don't want to hurt their feelings. I yell out, stop, you can't go that way, you're in danger. They might get upset, but I do it because I love them, because I want what is good for them. And that's how it's, that's how it's meant to be for God's people. If we really love one another, it will mean being willing to confront sin, to have difficult conversations. It will mean resolving conflict and disputes as best we can, not letting them fester. And that's actually what Paul does. But instead of visiting, he did it with a letter. Verse 3. And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction, and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. See Paul's love for the Corinthians here? He did write to confront their sin, but he did it with affliction, with anguish of heart, with many tears. He did it to let them know of his abundant love for them. Paul loves them deeply because they're his brothers and sisters in Jesus. They belong to one another, and so he loves them. He loves them enough that their sin causes him great anguish. He loves them enough that his desire for them to grow to be more like Jesus means that he's willing to suffer and face great grief and anguish for them. We see the same love for his fellow workers in verses 12 and 13. Paul went to Troas, but he didn't find Titus there. So even though he had gospel opportunities, he couldn't rest. He loved his brother Titus too much. And what's more, Titus was probably carrying news of the Corinthians. Paul needed to know because of his love for them too. And so he left Trias to go and find 
Titus in Macedonia. See Paul's heartfelt love. A love that reflects Jesus' great love for us. A love that's willing to have hard conversations. Willing to suffer for the sake of others. A love that wants joy for the other. A love that is moved to tears by the sin in someone else's life. That's the love that God has produced in Paul's heart. Living with gospel integrity will mean loving one another with a love like this. So do we? We gather together as, as a, a God's people on Sunday. We enjoy a cuppa together. And I do actually love the way our church family loves one another and cares for each other by praying and providing meals and visiting each other. That's great. But do we love one another like Paul is talking about? Love that's costly? Love that hurts? Love that's willing to have hard conversations and speak the truth in love, but love that's willing to shed tears and be in great anguish as it does so? We've been loved by that, like that by Jesus. Let's love one another like that too. Which brings us to the last aspect we see in this passage. True <coughs> forgiveness. See, someone has wronged Paul and the Corinthians. We don't know for sure what this person did. It might be the person that was involved in serious sexual sin from 1 Corinthians 5. Or maybe it's a false teacher who's leading them astray with a false gospel. Or maybe it's someone who's stirring up trouble against Paul and division in the church. And whatever it was, in his last letter, Paul wrote for the Corinthians to discipline this person. Possibly by putting him out of the church. See, if God's people are practicing this kind of heartfelt love that Paul was talking about, love that doesn't ignore sin but lovingly confronts it, then sometimes <coughs> church discipline is necessary. It's there to get the attention of the person who's sinning, to call them to repentance and to guard others in the church family too. The Corinthians were to discipline this person out of their love for him and for the church. But this was never meant to be a permanent punishment. The goal was always that this guy would repent. And if he repents, then they should forgive. See what Paul says in verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Paul says, enough. It sounds like he's repented. But the Corinthians aren't to keep him under discipline. No, then he might be overwhelmed with sorrow. Instead, they're to turn to forgive him and comfort him. This makes sense. We are people who have been forgiven much through Jesus' death for our sins and his resurrection, we've been given full and free forgiveness. All our guilt is dealt with. Every sinful moment, every selfish action, every unkind word, every moment we fail to do the good we should, every hidden sin that we would prefer no one ever found out about, we are forgiven. 
fully and freely reconciled to God through Jesus. And if we're people who've been forgiven much, we should be people who forgive much also. That's how this works. Because of what Jesus has done for us and his work in our lives, we can extend to others the forgiveness that we've been given. Now just imagine for a moment that you owed a debt of $100 million. Out of kindness, the creditor, after you pled with him, forgives your debt. I see you're in trouble. Don't worry about it. Let me sign the contract. Unbelievable, right? And then you go out and, and you're skipping along the street and you run into someone who owes you 20 bucks. And you say, come on, pay up. I need it now. It's not right, is it? In fact, Jesus tells a story just like that in Matthew 18. I stole it from Jesus. See, if we've been forgiven much, we should be people who forgive much. And not only that, but Paul says that the Corinthians should comfort him. This fits with last week, right? Remember, God comforts us so that we can comfort one another. The Corinthians are to share the comfort of forgiveness with this brother who has repented, just as they've received that comfort from God. The consequences of unforgiveness are actually really serious. Read from verse 8. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I may test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his design. See, there is a great enemy of God and his people, Satan. To refuse to forgive is to play right into his hands. To refuse to into his plans. To refuse to forgive is serious. See, not only is refusing to forgive showing a lack of understanding of the great forgiveness God's given us, it also leads to division and ongoing conflict amongst God's people. In this case, refusing to forgive might divide the Corinthians from Paul, who's commanded them to forgive. It might divide the church at Corinth amongst those who want to forgive and, and those who don't. There will be no true reconciliation. Let's not be tricked. Satan wants us not to forgive one another. He wants to stir up strife and trouble in our church family. He wants us to refuse to be reconciled, to brush things after the carpet, under the carpet. He wants us to nurse secret grudges. That's how he wants to divide our church family. Instead, living with gospel integrity will mean that we practice true forgiveness. This will not be easy. But it's God's work in our lives as he changes us to be more and more like Jesus. Is there someone in our church family that you need to forgive? Ask for God's help to forgive them this morning. You might need to keep running to God for his help. This might mean that you need to have a conversation with that person over morning tea. This might mean calling them up on the phone and making things right once you get home. 
But the only way that this forgiveness can start and grow in us is by all of us running back to the gospel. By seeing afresh the great debt that we've been forgiven. And as God works in us so that we can extend that forgiveness to others too. That's what a life of gospel integrity will look like as God works in our hearts by his spirit. I can explain. That's Paul's intention in this passage. It might seem like he's let them down, but actually he's living a life of gospel integrity. A life that we can live too, as by God's gracious work in our lives, we grow to live with gospel integrity that reflects God's character in every area of our lives. In clean consciences, forgiven by God and growing to be more like him. With godly faithfulness, rejoicing in God's promises, meaning what we say and seeking the good of others. With heartfelt love, seeking the good of each other, even when it's costly. And with true forgiveness, as we extend to each other the forgiveness that God has given us in Jesus. Let's ask God to work in us so that we can live with this kind of gospel integrity. Let's pray. (coughs) Our Heavenly Father, we are humbled by Paul's words in this passage, by his clean conscience, by his faithfulness to your word that reflects your faithfulness to us, by his heartfelt love for other believers, by his forgiveness of those who've hurt him. Father, we confess that so often we fall short of living with this kind of gospel integrity. Forgive us, we pray. Thank you for the true forgiveness that we have in Jesus. Please work in us by your spirit. Please change us to be more like Jesus. Please grow us in all of these things. Please help us as a church family to love one another with this heartfelt love to forgive one another freely, to live with this kind of integrity. And please, Lord, as we go through our weeks, as we see our own sinfulness, as we face struggle and suffering in our world, help us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and remember how you are faithful to all your promises to us in him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.